Advisory services offered through Prime Capital Investment Advisors, LLC, PCIA, a federally registered investment advisor, Overland Park, Kansas. The following or preceding commentaries and responses are the opinions of Jason Noble, Andy Merchant, and their guests, and are not necessarily the opinions of PCIA, are for informational and educational purposes only, and are not and should not be considered investment advice. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Welcome to 20 Minutes of Clarity, the podcast that focuses on strategies and ideas to answer the wealth questions you have, hosted by Prime Capital Wealth Advisors Jason Noble and Andy Merchant. As wealth advisors, they've spent years navigating the complex world of finance and wealth management for their clients. Each week, they share practical tips and insights to help you achieve your financial goals. Whether you're looking to start a business, build your investment portfolio, or simply improve your personal finances, the next 20 minutes promises to be informative, engaging, and most importantly, actionable. 20 Minutes of Clarity starts now. Welcome to 20 Minutes of Clarity. I'm your host, Jason Noble. And with me today, I have Julie Kane from Democracy ETF. Welcome, Julie. Thank you for having me, Jason. I'm excited to have this conversation because we have met each other at a few conferences. And those conferences were by invite only. So it tells that we're running in similar circles. And I love that. And those conversations that we've had over breakfast or even over lunch at another conference, I was like, okay, Julie, can you grace us with your presence and join me on, on 20 Minutes of Clarity? And thank you so much for saying yes. I appreciate that. Absolutely. So I, want the, I, I, would, I would want us to start off with, tell us about your background and, and yourself. Sure. Um, so I grew up on the East Coast outside of Washington, D.C. Uh, we went to University of Virginia, and while there, I joined, decided to join the Navy and ended up um, choosing uh, a flight billet to fly helicopters and uh, was deployed to a base called Subic Bay, QB Point in the Philippines. So at a very young age, I had the honor of uh, serving my country and seeing what it's like to not live in a full democracy. Um, at the time, they were worried about a coup, so I got to fly dignitaries around, flew the Navy SEALs around, and um, uh, was recruited out of the Navy by SEI. And fast forward, today our ETF sits on SEI's platform, so I've kind of gone full circle. Um, but after SEI, I spent more time in financial services at Wells Fargo, Wells Fargo's private bank, uh, Charles Schwab Advisor Services, and back to Wells Fargo. But the whole time, I was watching the impact investing space and the rise of ESG. And mm. in parallel to that, watching the trends in democracy and became more and more concerned about the way capital has been flowing, um, especially in these passive international indices. Um, it, they appear to have been pressured to allocate more and more to authoritarians over the years. So um, my co-founders and I were brainstorming on this, and this was before the war in Ukraine. This was during COVID, so this is more than three years ago. And um, we, uh, during our brainstorm, um, our chief economist had been modeling coronavirus death rates in his spare time using the Economist Democracy Index. Turns out there's no correlation, but the index happened to be on his desk while we were brainstorming. And uh, I know it's serendipity uh, when we were able to negotiate a license to use the Economist Magazine Democracy Index, we formed our company. 
So that was um, that was back in 2020. We launched the Democracy International Fund in, uh, in April of 2021. So we have over two and a half years of track record now, and we're very pleased with how the fund has has um, become more timely. You know, and sadly, the trends are not getting better. Now we we've got war in the Middle East. We've got problems in the South China Sea and the war, of course, the war in Ukraine. So we've had, you know, very um, interesting and positive feedback from folks who hadn't been thinking about geopolitics and how that could affect your international exposure. So share with us the like the investment thesis and approach of the Democracy Fund uh, ETF, you know, international. Like, I think that's I want to be clear Right, like, what is the underlying approach? Sure. So the the, uh, the Democracy International Fund, our investment thesis is that democracies will perform better over the long run. Uh, democracies have enforced the rule of law and contract rights. Um, they value civil liberties, whereas authoritarians have corrupt governments. The rules can change overnight. We've seen there's more war, civil unrest. So what we do is we start with the same basket of stocks that are in an all-world XUS index. So that's over 2,900 international equities, large cap and mid cap. We look at each securities country of risk as defined by Bloomberg or Icon. And then we assign the Economist Magazine most recent country democracy score. So that results in very neutral tilts. So for example, we are overweighted in Japan, the UK, Canada, Switzerland, Australia, Sweden, and then we're underweighted in Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Egypt, and China. So we hold 74% less China than your all-world XUS index. So it's a way to hold every country accountable to their democracy score. And it's uh, we've, we're not ESG, I should point that out. We're not an ESG fund, um, but people who like ESG, like our strategy, and people who are concerned with ESG also like our strategy because it's very transparent. We're using public data. We're using a neutral third party who is not in the United States. <laughs> They're UK-based, very well-respected, um, and very robust measure of democracy. There are over 60 different indicators that go into each country score. And The Economist has been tracking these country scores um, for over 15 years. And they, um, the, the indicators roll up into themes such as electoral process, functioning of government, um, civil liberties, and political participation. You know, when, when you brought up China, that was a staggering uh, 74% underweight versus the indice, versus the standard uh, indice, right? So I was looking at some concerns coming out of China, especially with an aging population. And 40 years of a one-child rule, they don't have uh, the, the workforce to replace those that are going into retirement. They have a migration issue, people fleeing our country. And um, the, their birthing rates are staggeringly scary. And when I'm looking at that, it's like, what is the supply chain impact to uh, companies? Uh, what is uh, the um, not just supply chain, but what is the revenue that companies are getting? Can you speak a little bit more to to China and like what you're evaluating um, and what you're seeing as well? Sure. Yeah. No. Sadly, China's had difficulty emerging from the three years of COVID lockdown, and uh, 
while their economic growth remains sluggish, they also have had trouble with their property market. Um, and then that's like three quarters of their, uh, sorry, one quarter of their economy. Um, they have a terrible demographic problem, as you mentioned. And um, mm -hmm. sadly, I don't see how they can turn that around anytime in the near future. Um, just yesterday, uh, our chief economist um, was on a panel at APEC, which is hosted here in San Francisco, where we are based. And uh, we were in dialogue with um, multiple panelists who were raising the concerns around China and Hong Kong risk and um, the new security laws that China's imposed on Hong Kong and how that's no longer able to be the financial hub that it used to be. So yeah, sadly, the trends are not looking good. And um, yeah, I think it's an important time for investors to really evaluate how they're exposed in their, on the international uh, sleep of their portfolios. Okay. And I, I, that was something that you mentioned earlier. I kind of want you to reiterate and go a little bit deeper, if you don't mind, where you were saying that there was an increase inflows into these countries that were not uh, um, exhibiting the democratic pra practices. Um, and, and, and that was increasing. And, and I can't help but think as a, as a professional, that was because there was just uh, money being put into international index indexes. Exactly. Right? Yes. And yeah. by proxy, that was yeah. doing it. Right. Now, I think more recently it's so come it, down a little bit. But when, when we were looking at the problem over three years ago, you could see the, both the emerging market and the all-world XUS indices increasing their allocations to China and other authoritarians. Now, since then... With their economy, with their market caps going down, I think it's come down a little bit. Um, but <laughs> it's, uh, I think it's time but for. But they were, um, the, but these indices, aware. they were just. But this, this is what I want to kind of go back to is like these indices that are, I, I would say, um, kind of like boilerplate, right? They're putting into four hundred one ks. They're putting in to like, um, I would just say robo advisors, like modeled strategies they're not looking at the underlying what's under the hood but so they're buying the all world x us index and they're having a higher allocation going into a, a country that doesn't share the values of the person who's investing that's spot on and, 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 exactly and maybe that's right. one way that they have done it so why were these indices increasing their allocation into those countries i have an idea but i want to hear from the expert i think they were pressure i think um, they were pressured by MSCI. I mean, sorry, I think they were pressured by China. MSCI was pressured by China, as was FTSE. And interestingly, there was a congressional probe into why MSCI and BlackRock following MSCI, this was um, a month and a half ago, why Why is there so much? And so that is now being investigated. So we've developed, again, our strategy is, is trying to undo that. We're, we're both market cap and democracy weighted. So we're not just looking at company size. We're incorporating geopolitical risk. So for someone who's listening right now, they're like, okay, how, how would I incorporate geopolitical risk within my investment strategy? Let's say they're going at on their own. Like, what are some of the things that they could be asking or looking into so they can make better informed decisions? I would recommend they read their prospectus and look at where, look at how the your international exposure is allocated by country. 
not by, okay, what are the biggest companies? Not what are the, we have need to look at sectors, exposure, all of that, but look at the country exposure and where are the supply chains of those large multinational companies and start thinking about um, your overall exposure to geopolitical risk. Uh, uh, Julie, okay, now let's say another scenario is the listener is uh, has a, f- a financial advisor. What questions should they be asking a financial advisor <laughs> to see if this is being incorporated into their investment strategy and approach? Uh, same answer. Ask them to show you a breakdown of how your portfolio is allocated by country. And then think about which countries you're comfortable having exposure to. At the end of the day, if you're having huge allocations to authoritarians, that means you're fueling the growth of those economies. You're lowering the cost of capital. With our strategy, you are instead tilting to help fuel the growth of more democratic countries. And if you care about democracy, and my understanding is most, most Americans are worried about authoritarianism, um, hopefully our strategy will resonate because here's a, a situation where you can be fueling the growth of more democratic countries and their economies. So it was uh, your co-founder with two other individuals. Um, and I, you, you touched on that story of like where it started. What does this investment approach and, uh, mean to you personally for someone who served in our great military and the Navy. Thank you again for your service. But what does this mean to you personally? Well, I like to say it's thanks to democracy that I even exist. My dad was born in Germany and we barely escaped as Hitler was coming to power when he was five years old. Came into Ellis Island with his Statue of Liberty and he's instilled in me an appreciation for democracy at a very young age. He also served in the Navy to give back after with gratitude of being able to to move oh, here. Wow. Um, and then my mom's dad on the other side was a P-38 pilot in World War II, and he was a POW in Germany and uh, retired as a colonel in the Air Force. So on both sides of my family, I've, I, um, I feel like democracy is in my blood. And when I look around the world every month, I, I'm sorry, every week I read The Economist magazine, and the trends are not getting better. And when you look at it by population, it's it's even scarier the, way, the direction the world's going. So uh, I'd like to see people take action and and vote with their wallets, vote with your dollars. Put your money where your mouth is, right? Exactly. <laughs> Put your money where your heart is, is probably the better sentiment there, which... Um, I don't know if that's trademarked, but Julie, let's look into that later. Um, but what I'm getting into next is just going. You're you're saying that you're you're seeing these trends where it's not getting any better. Now I may be asking you a question that's outside of your expertise, but what do you think needs to happen for things to start getting better on having more countries move towards the democratic approach? Well, if our strategy takes off and then others copycat and we start to see serious shifts in capital flow that will incentivize countries to become more democratic to get more capital so if i could w- so, wave my so magic squeeze wand, that money money moves the world right, right. Yeah. So, so, so squeeze the money flow 
and they're going to have to go, okay, this isn't working anymore. We're going to have to make adjustments and course correct. Exactly. And in the case of our strategy, it's all public data. They can look up which of those 60 indicators they need to improve to improve their democracy score. You know, more free and fair elections, more women in government. There's six, you know, any country can work on that, increase their score within the year, and then the tilts will change and they'll get more capital. Then we could see, then we could see change. Have you seen any countries making those? moves at this point? Not recently. Unfortunately. No. <laughs> Has countries in the past, right, looking at historical data that you could kind of point to that we could kind of look at and go, oh, okay, I see that. Anything come to mind on there? I know I'm putting you on a spot. There are plenty of examples of that, actually. And then, and so I can think of a more recent example in Poland. They just um, uh, brought in a more moderate uh, official. People showed up in record numbers to vote. So the good news in Poland recently. Um, in the past, Taiwan rose the ranks very quickly with their democracy score. Um, the Nordics have always been at the top. No surprise there. Um, and China's been dropping. Their score has been dropping for all the reasons we've talked about. And, and Hong Kong as well. And Hong Kong as well. Well, you know, this has been insightful. This is a lot to digest. Like, where could people go to learn more about your investment approach and understand more about the, the information that we were discussing today? Well, feel free to reach out to me directly on LinkedIn. Or you can uh, check out our website, which has all uh, background for uh, retail investors, including our prospectus at, at democracyinvestments.com. And, um, and, and I would recommend everyone talk to their advisor and, and really, as we discussed earlier, understand, are your dollars aligned with your heart? As you said, Jason, I like that a lot. <laughs> well, what, this is one of my favorite questions to ask every time I do 20 minutes of clarity. For those who listen regularly, they already know what I'm going to ask. But Julie, here we go. If you could share with our listeners an important aspect of building wealth, what would that be? I'm sure you get a lot of the typical answers, and I'm going to say something different. I would, I would recommend right. think about your legacy. Think about your, your grandkids and your great-grandkids, and what do you want to role model to them? What stories do you want to be able to tell them? And you, and given everything we've just discussed, money makes the world go around. Can you align your portfolio with impact and with your heart and with your values? I love that. That was great. I'm already remiss that I didn't ask one question. Can I ask it now? Absolutely. <laughs> what was your What was your nickname? As oh, my call sign. Can you guess? Can you guess with my last name? What, Kane? What, Kane? Candy Kane? I don't know. What was it? Yeah, that was it. And Are you later, serious? Yep. <laughs> and they moved the entire officers club to the Aviation Museum in Pensacola. So my squadron plaque is up there. If you're ever in any, you'll see my name is Julie Candy Kane. However, my next squadron, they also called me Hurricane, as in H E R. Good. Yeah, I like that. Okay. Okay. I so when I see you at the next conference, 
<laughs> I see what the next conference is. A hurricane or candy cane, right? Hurricane. <laughs> hurricane it is. You got it. That was that was truly the hurricane cane from democracy investing i was so happy to have you join me today thank you so much i'm your host jason noble with 20 minutes of clarity thank you for tuning in and keep on listening we're here to serve thank you so much